0: Welcome to another episode of the WBT, Graph-Bearing Trees podcast covering groundbreaking books and ideas. I'm Adrian Bonnenberger, this episode's host. In this episode, we're lucky to speak with two journalists and writers who did more than just research and write about their subject. They walked and sailed the terrain, experiencing firsthand the wild lands about which they subsequently wrote. Brian Kastner is an American author, journalist, former Explosive Ordnance Disposal Officer, and veteran of the Iraq War. He's authored four books The Long Walk, Disappointment River, All the Ways We Kill and Die, and most recently, Stampede, Gold Fever, and Disaster in the Klondike. And written for the New York Times, Wired, Esquire, Vice, Rathbury Tree, and has guest hosted with me several times before. I always welcome his perspective. It's great to be back, Adrian. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Andrea Pitzer is a journalist whose writing has appeared in the Washington Post, the New York Review of Books, Outside, the Daily Beast, and others. She's published three books, The Secret History of Vladimir Nabokov, One Night, A Global History of Concentration Camps, and most recently, Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World. Brian, Andrea, thanks for joining. I hope to talk about how you arrived at such harrowing and distant subjects and how you then decided to physically explore the space before writing about it. My first question for both of you is, should I be terrified of the Arctic? Because after reading your books, I am.
1: Well, the Arctic is kind of a big umbrella. Uh, so. Um, You know, there's mainland Europe, part of it is the Arctic, mainland Russia, you know, Canada. So there's varying degrees of uh, anxiety or terror that you could invoke depending on where you go and what time of year you're there and what happens. So I don't think you have to be afraid of the Arctic as a whole, but it's probably sensible to have a healthy fear of of going some places.
2: I I would agree. And I would just add that like... um... On for a previous book for Disappointment River, where I paddled the Mackenzie River, I could tell you that I I mean, there was a real change in the weather, in the feeling, in the everything once you cross the Arctic Circle. So it is it I, I guess I was surprised that it's not at least to me, it did not feel like an arbitrary line on the map, like my journey changed considerably um, once uh, once crossing that line. And so I don't know. I, I agree. I wouldn't. I don't know if you need to be terrified, but you need to be prepared. That's for sure.
0: That certainly seems like a theme that both of you tackle in Icebound and Stampede. And and I it's it's been a couple of years since I read Disappointment River, so I apologize that I can't speak more articulately about that, Brian, extemporaneously anyway. Um, but I the preparedness seems to be like the key to uh, to Arctic exploration. It seems like kind of a no-brainer, but then people get surprised by it all the time.
1: Well, it's, it's interesting that I went to the Arctic three times for Icebound, and I did a dog sledding expedition, was the first thing I did, during Polar Night uh, up on Svalbard, halfway between Norway and the North Pole. And one of the things that that taught me that proved to be true in all of the expeditions is that being prepared is really key But you also have to be prepared that a lot is going to go wrong. And in places like the Arctic, things can cascade much more quickly than they do into other places where something going wrong can lead to something really significant being a problem. So part of the preparation is also just to be prepared for when things go wrong, like just to not get spooked by it. To just try to solve the problem and realize that if your goal is for nothing ever to go wrong there's no degree of preparation that's going to get you to that point Uh, we had an engine die on uh, on our boat on one of the trips Um, I broke a finger uh, all kinds of things I got dragged by the dog sled at one point on that first expedition so there's just you know, there's always going to be stuff that's out of control. You just prepare as best you can. And then the preparation is also realizing you can't prepare for everything.
2: Yeah. What, what's the old saying from the military, Adrian? It's two is one and one is none. Um, so I I, uh, I definitely carried extras of everything on, on the various
0: uh, expeditions on the trips. Yeah, I, I do remember from Disappointment River, was pillaged at one point, a bunch of stuff was taken, which is another type of um, odd thing to encounter. And, but it really is striking. I, I know we're sort of focusing on, on, on this particular aspect of, of the Arctic, but it really does seem to come down to that this, on a certain level. Like I, and, and the thing, Andrea, that, that really ju- jumped out to me when I was reading Icebound was how one of the things that was not expected or, or was sort of an unknown then, I guess, was scurvy. Um, which which is something you think of as having like been been solved in the age of exploration, but this was just the very beginning of the age of exploration and they hadn't solved it yet. And I had no idea what scurvy was. So what a terrifying thing to have to encounter.
1: Well, how terrifying to encounter it when you don't quite understand it too. I mean, they they thought... You know, scurvy, for those who don't know, is actually caused by a lack of vitamin C. Humans are one of the few things on Earth that it's alive that can't synthesize vitamin C for themselves. And so we're dependent on uh, greens and fruits and, and various things to, to get that vitamin C. And these guys were in the high Arctic, and they were high up enough that you're basically into Arctic desert at that point. You know, you're at 77 more or less uh, north. The captain thought, which was one of the common things at the time— that like forcing the men to exercise was how you would sort of get past scurvy. When in reality, it was basically, it was he had good intentions, but he was torturing these poor men who ended up stuck for the winter on these islands above mainland Russia. And it's interesting because it sort of was known at that point in some quarters that fruits could help with it. When When some of the European trips went to South America, they were given fruit. And it was understood that that would help it. These guys had heard that uh, scurvy grass would help them. And so there's one point at the voyage when they're trying to get home where they encounter that and they eat it. They just are crawling on the ground eating it. They know on some level that they need to. But this idea of this cure for scurvy and exactly what caused it would sort of be understood and then lost again and understood and lost. And it would dog expeditions. So my guys sailed, they were Dutch sailors and they sailed at the end of the 1500s. So in the 1590s and it would dog sailors and expeditions well into the 20th century so for more than 300 more years well after everything was very set out there was still this this idea that it you know it wasn't serious that you didn't really need to plan for it so you even see some russian expeditions and european expeditions getting stuck in the far north in the 1910s 1920s and suffering terribly from scurvy
2: yeah. I mean, on the the gold rush in the Klondike was 1897, 1898, and scurvy there was known as Arctic leprosy and was, uh, was absolutely rampant. I mean, Jack London got Sir Scurvy holed up in his cabin over the winter and his right leg retracted into his body and his teeth started to fall out. And um, I mean, he only got to Dawson City because uh somebody that he was in the cabin with or in the little camp with, I should say, built a boat and got him to the hospital in time where they fed him potatoes and said, you need to leave the Yukon immediately uh, or this is going to kill you. So, I mean, even by then they knew they knew the cause and they knew how to solve the problem. But that doesn't mean that they actually had had the food to be able to to stave it off. And so it still affected you know, probably thousands of Stampeders is, you know, even that late.
0: Well, in that problem, it seemed to me that, you know, reading Stampede, if if the problem of exploration is you have a, a ship full of people who may or may not be able to accurately predict most of the, the things that can go wrong in the expedition, the problem of the Stampede was a bunch of people, I, I mean, just sort of like an economy of scale, like uh, a bunch of fools. <laughs> wandering into the north without enough equipment to to, to strike it rich during the summer.
2: Uh, they left in August and September, many of them in August, September, October 1897 to head to Alaska uh, and the Yukon without, you know, contemplating how winter was coming. And I think that, you know, the thing that that I learned or the thing that, uh, again, eventually the research like impressed on me that I didn't understand at first was we might think in the late 1890s, people were somehow more used to the outdoors than we are today. That, like, um, you know, that this was all like cowboys or frontiers people or settlers or, you know, like they, the wagon train just kind of continued to Alaska or people that were used to this kind of environment or had some skills or in some way like knew what they were doing. But by the late 1890s, there were streetcars and People didn't keep their own horses. They rode in wagons or they uh, a lot of people had electricity like there were, you know, they lived in tenement buildings and it was a very modern urban life. And it was those modern urban people who then uh, got on boats and went to Alaska and they didn't have any more skills than your average modern urban person today would. In fact, there's a scene, one of the newspaper reporters, Tappan Adney, who was writing for Harper's, he writes about how on the boat up that like people in their leather shoes and like fine suits one day like went into their, you know, their room or below decks and put on their Klondike, you know, uniform, their costume. And it was like, you know, clothes, rough denim that they had purchased just for the trip. And it was brand new, like out of the package, so to speak, with all the creases still. And they were play acting like they, these were not, these were not a hundred thousand grizzled prospectors going north. It was just very average people uh, taking a leap of faith, which was not, you know, didn't turn out well, obviously for most of them.
0: Now that is a, a great difference, a great point of difference with Icebound where I think one of the things that's so extraordinary about the story is you have this a ship with 17, 18 people. I, I don't remember the exact number that, that Barron sets up and his sort of final journey with the carpenter is lost within the first month, um, but everybody is actually so skilled. Like they are that, that group of people who are like, oh, we lost the carpenter we're gonna build a, an inferior house to the one that we would have built with the carpenter, which is very impressive and, and cool. And I guess made up for a lot of the, the catastrophes that they encountered.
1: They were incredibly resourceful that they could build this cabin. They would just, there were no trees there, of course. So they had to scan the shore for driftwood. They took apart, because their ship was icebound, they took apart the the non-critical parts, uh, superstructure as it were. So not the whole, of course, but some of the cabins that have been built above the waterline. And they built a, a reasonable cabin in which to spend the winter. And, and that's kind of incredible. And yet they killed any number of polar bears and never made warm clothing out of the polar bear skins. They, made, they killed foxes and they made fox fur hats for themselves. But they encountered indigenous people, uh, mostly Sami and Nenets on the way north. There were none this far north, but on the way north they had encountered them. And they didn't seem to pick up anything from those people who actually lived, you know in much closer conditions to what they would be experiencing. So on the one hand, they were pretty skilled and handy, both with what they could do, rejiggering boats, you know, retrofitting them for their needs, um building this cabin. Just hauling sleds over bumpy ice and snow to drag firewood because there's more than an inch of ice on the inside of their cabin, you know, trying to keep themselves alive with this firewood. So they were both very hardy and they were knowledgeable within their fields. But it is still kind of striking that Barents, William Barents, who was the heart of these three expeditions that went in the 1590s, having been in the Arctic twice already that they did not really have true winter clothing with them. They didn't have anything like the gear you could even go to Ikea and pick up today, let alone stuff that the indigenous people could have helped them create. So it's kind of amazing both how underprepared they were and how savvy they were with the skills that they had.
2: Andrea, can I ask you a question about this animal slaughter (laughs) Um, for lack of a better term? Um, Because something that really struck me from reading Icebound was just, I mean, not necessarily the number of animals killed, obviously they need to eat, but just like the the cataloging of it and the details that you had that you were able to communicate about exactly like, um, you know, the details of every battle of where each polar bear was hit and like, you know, what happened to the carcass and how they bashed the teeth in on various ones. and And I wonder, you know, obviously you had access to journals and such, like notes that from the trip, You know, did this, you know, did the killing of these animals did like, did each of these encounters with the polar bears or foxes or whatever, like, did it occupy that much of the journal? Like, was it a highlight in the journal itself? Or is that something that you picked on? Like, how much did this really, I don't know, can you tell how much it occupied their own, um, I'll say, imagination or preoccupied them is maybe a better way to put it.
1: Well, like a lot of terror, whether it's military terror or living in a police state or other kinds of terror, this kind of terror that they endured with the polar bears becomes both very mundane and everyday, but is also occupies this huge piece of their imagination. I mean, there's one point. Pretty early on in the winter the, the snow is like covering their cabin. It, it rises to the size of the cabin and then finally their cabin is completely snowed in. They give up digging it out. They just dig a set of stairs to get to the surface and, and they just call it a day basically and try to keep those stairs cleared out. And at one point the polar bear is on their roof, ripping apart their roof, trying knowing that they're in there, trying to get into them. And can you they did not build the roof to withstand giant marauding creatures, of course. So they are literally all trapped in this cabin in polar night with this bear marauding on the roof. They've lined the roof with sailcloth to try to help keep the water out. And they hear the sailcloth ripping. I mean, like the terror of these moments is huge. And yet they're encountering polar bears in some parts of their journey every day, sometimes multiple bears. And so of course it becomes an everyday thing. So I think it's both mundane and sort of horrific at the same time. And their response to these animals was really interesting because there's the polar bears. The the first reaction they had on the first voyage to meeting a polar bear was that they were going to take it back to Amsterdam. They had seen trained bears, brown bears or black bears, I'm sure, on the street. And they thought they would do this with a polar bear, which they were really quickly disabused of that idea. And then from that point forward, they just kill every bear they can find and will often go out of their way even when it's not necessary and they really don't eat the bears for food except for one horrific time when they uh, find out that polar bear liver is incredibly toxic to humans and their skin peels off from head to toe. They really aren't eating the bears so they're they're defending themselves against the bears and they're also slaughtering the bears and it wasn't just the bears. There's a point in the story where they round this Uh, basically there's a couple small islands just north of these larger islands, north of the Russian mainland, and they come around one of them and they see hundreds of walruses. And the first thing they do is go over the side in their small boats to try to kill as many as they can. They've never seen a walrus before, but they've heard that the tusks are valuable. So this is their response. And it was really interesting on my third expedition, which was in 2019, we came around the same bit of land and more than 400 years later, hundreds of walruses in exactly the same spot and what we did instead was one of the Russian sailors went and got his accordion and we did a concert and they came over and they were completely entranced but this question of their response to the animals it was even at that stage really mercenary like slaughter and retrieval of anything valuable was really kind of at the heart of what they were doing, and I didn't want to soft-pedal that. There are times they're just defending themselves, but there's also a lot of times that they are just killing things. The credit they'll get, the small credit they can get to counterbalance that a little bit, is they really did kind of go out as proto-scientists, and the reason I have those details is because they recorded things they saw in the sky, at what elevation they were at, how long the polar bear pelts were, Uh, Where the eggs of these birds nested, you know, that were in the cliffs, how did they get them? And this was all incredibly valuable stuff for scientists. In some cases, they found phenomenon that wouldn't be explained for hundreds of years. So there's this weird mix of, like, necessary killing, slaughter, and scientific analysis, and it's all three are part of what they did
0: part of the project of your books to a certain extent is a kind of uh, historiography where you're looking at the types of stories that are being told. What's striking to me about um, the Barents expedition, especially the first and the second, where they're they're really more gathering information is how much emphasis is placed on the fact that locals corroborate this idea that there's a, a warm inland sea like just over the ice or that it, 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 they talk about how the ice you know, unfreezes. And, and these days, one of the things that scientists are, are, you know, are, are taught to do is to talk to local or indigenous populations. And, and I think take takes stories about the environment and take stories about their history as part of what informs them. And of course, the Arctic has gone through periods where it, there has been less ice and less snow on the ground. And I, I just I, I I don't know if you encountered any of this um, with Barents' journals or, or or with the journals in general, but did you feel that what when he was saying that the locals were telling him that there was actually this sea that this was either that this was him lying and just being like oh yeah it's there like we talked to them like our Russian interpreter told us it's 100% it's there, or maybe this was sort of, he was just misunderstanding a kind of story about that region of the world and how things were up there.
1: I think they pretty clearly in many, many instances did not have good interpretation and they had to sort of pigeon their way through things. So some of what they report coming from the local sources that they really did try to tap into. They also tried to kidnap some of them at some points, we have to say as well, which is really not cool. Um, But they did see that local information as valuable, but how accurately they wrote down what was told to them um, varied wildly depending on which voyage it was and which boat you were on, because in some cases on that second expedition, there were seven ships And some of them had a decent interpreter board and other ones didn't. And whoever was there in that moment is who got the information. So I think that in that case, we can't really count on that local information being accurate, but you're absolutely right on the importance of indigenous cultures and knowledge. There is a story I tell in the book about the Franklin expeditions, which happened 200 years, more than 200 years later and over North America, instead of over Europe and Asia, the ships go down, the Terra and the Erebus go down. And just in the last decade, there were these huge expeditions put together to launch to try to find the wrecks. And in both cases, it was basically locals, local indigenous people who said, hey, you know, there used to be a big mast sticking out of the water over there in this place. Before we set off on this thing you want to do, why don't we go check that out? And they're like, "Okay, that won't take long. And they found it. I mean, so it is uh, a valuable historical source. And I think the indigenous knowledge has also been shown to be, for instance, with whale populations uh, up near Alaska, that the indigenous ideas and history with how to manage species is is super, super valuable. So we need to be turning to that, even if we can't necessarily rely on what Barents said they were saying 400 years ago.
0: Yeah, and that's certainly something that comes up in Stampede as well. To me, Uh, And I know that I'm not the only (laughs) reader of Stampede uh, and certainly not the authoritative reader of Stampede, but the thing that I've told other people about the book is that if there's a utility to the book beyond uh, the joy and the pleasure of reading it, it's that you have these, there are these different stories that are told. There's a sort of like um, status quo story of Klondike, there's the, uh, which is, you know, uh, people, people uh, stumbling into the uh, into the far north, and some fools, uh, many fools losing their lives, or if they're lucky, just losing their stake, uh, but a few intrepid sort of hardworking people working the claims and, and getting the gold. Uh, but then there's this other story, which ends up being, I, I guess, as, as you make the case compellingly, um, which is that the First Nations people <laughs> essentially discovered the claim. And, it, and it, while they did, weren't the ones who, who benefited the most from uh, the gold rush, they were certainly the ones who discovered it and, and ought to be uh, credited with that. And that's a story that it's, it's not that that story is, is, is recently discovered. That story has always been there. The thing that you did was taking these stories side by side and comparing them and saying, look, if you talk to the First Nations people, they explain how this happened.
2: I'm obviously standing on the shoulder of giants when it comes to the indigenous research, but there's been great sociologists and anthropologists like Dr. Kirkshank, who has been collecting the oral histories of the indigenous people up in, in that part of the world. And the fact that Skookum Jim, uh, also known as Keish in his native language, the fact that he was the one that actually discovered the Klondike gold was has been well known for 125 years there because it's been passed down in the oral histories. Uh, who actually filed the claim is different and says more about how it's more of a colonial history and how white people used the law and, and, you know, took what they wanted. But it's kind of funny how there's been this, you know, there's a bit of an original sin when it comes to the discovery of the gold in the Klondike it's not just the fact that the person who actually discovered it in that particular creek never got credit um, but it's also that there were two white prospectors that were you know kind of competing over who should get the credit and that that you know took on a nationalism tinge whether it should have been a Canadian should get credit or an American should get credit. Uh, it turned on a bit of a racial tinge that a white Canadian should have, credit for it and not an American who had married an indigenous woman like that you know that should never have been allowed and so that person shouldn't get the credit there's all these like really ugly overtones uh, that come in in the 1910s and 1920s as people fight over the legacy of it Uh, but I, I think like you say like the actual facts of it should be well known and yet if you go to like I don't know, some history websites, even some government history websites that talk about the history of the Klondike, they'll talk about this controversy as if it's a controversy. In fact, there's like a little tour you can take, like discover who really discovered the gold as if as if there's still a question and it's it's not settled history or should be settled history. It's not the reason I wrote the book, but something that, like you say, I was trying to do in the book is... Yes, lay those out, but also make the case that, no, this really isn't an argument like this. Let, let's let be very clear about what happened here.
0: Bringing that back to, to Icebound, it's so interesting that Barents, I, I I never knew the story of William Barents. That age is a little bit obscure for me. I think the 15th and 16th, maybe the 14th to the 16th century uh, is a little bit of a, a mystery. And so I, I was familiar with the Barents Sea and he gets, the, the sea bears his name, um, but to say that there's nothing there, which is the impulse, like, oh, there's nothing up there, you know, in the Arctic, it's ice, is to, you know, overlook the, the many people. I mean, when he sailed there, the first thing they encounter in this extraordinary, cool, mysterious place, Nova Zembla, is Russian shipwrecks and native peoples with their, these sort of strange burial grounds.
1: You know, we think of the Silk Road, or we think of the Middle East, we think of these trading crossroads, and we think of sort of these known places, some of which even predate the Barents story, but it was really that Russian coastline around where Norway bends down to Russia now and um, along the Barents Sea and that part of the coast. I mean, it was a real mishmash of Norwegians and Danes trying to sort of stake a claim. And uh, Europe was just starting to trade with Russia down at Archangel on the White Sea, which is all right in that area. And Barents is going to go further north than all that but this region is their jumping-off place. And there's just this mix of Sami people, and when they go a little farther east, Nenets people that are these herders that come up seasonally up to just the very southern end of Novaya Zemlya, Nova Zemlya in the book, because that's what the Dutch and English called it. And it's really this bustling fishing and fur-harvesting area. And the big concern when they first get there is People are wondering, what are you doing and are you trying to sort of make inroads and steal our trading to get the furs and and sort of take this over? And they're just kind of like, oh, no, we're just on a scouting voyage. And, you know, they're kind of underplaying what they're doing because, of course, what they want to find is a trade route with China. So they're hoping to basically go as close to the North Pole as they can to kind of go over the top of the world and get to China as a trade route. And so I think people don't realize that there was so much happening in that place. But then when Barents sails farther north, trying to get to China, they really go farther north than there's any recorded voyage so far. And yet they, a lot of the way along the way, pass these Pomar shipwrecks. And the Pomar are not quite an indigenous people. They're Russians, but they sort of set out for the sea a couple centuries at least before Barents and had worked their way up that coastline, and a lot of Russians will tell you that they had rounded Nova Zembla before Barents ever got there, but we don't have any proof of that. So that is unlike Brian's situation, uh, that has to just remain contested. And we just have to say, what is the first map from, who mapped the coastline first, while acknowledging that the Pomar really might have been there. And it's possible that indigenous people, in if there had been abatements in the ice, might have been up there before, but we just have no proof of it today. So Barents was clearly the first Western European, you know, not from Russia, not from one of the local indigenous peoples who went there. And the thing that was amazing about what, and it was 17 of them to start with before that carpenter died, the amazing thing that they accomplished was to overwinter up there, which is just unbelievable and was such an amazing story I won't say who makes it back some of them but not all of them make it back and when they do come back the story goes into multiple languages like within a year or two which is incredible it's read all over it has popular awareness to it Shakespeare references them in his own play Twelfth Night I mean they it's just this legendary thing that you would go there and survive this and yet That place that they sailed out of that was only a couple hundred miles south was already this really burgeoning trade area. So I think it is a piece of history. It's part of why I wanted to write about it, that we know all about these Northwest Passages, if you grew up in the U.S. or Canada. But the Northeast Passage has its own super dramatic stories.
0: I'm realizing now that that is something that that you do a very good job of describing the impact of Behrens's journey is much more in terms of how it sort of fires the imagination and encourages people to explore less so with an eye toward necessarily establishing trade routes and more so to to challenge oneself or to sort of battle against the elements or beasts as the polar bears must have seemed to the Dutchman. I know we're, we're, I don't want to keep you guys too long here, but the very first sort of question or idea that I wanted to explore with you both is that you went on these trips, you experienced these places. Brian, you walked the, the Klondike and Andre, you said you've, you've been on three three voyages. And I think one in specific you, you talk about in the book, uh, the one where the engine breaks. As journalists and writers, if you feel that's, not a necessary thing for a journalist to do, but perhaps necessary to your process.
2: There's some, I mean, there's some places I went and there's some places that I purposely didn't. uh, And and I'll explain why in a second. But I mean, I knew from the books that I wanted to write, obviously I wrote Disappointment River. My model for that book was David Graham's Lost City of Z, you know, a combination of a historical journey and a modern journey and intertwining the two. Like I, you can't do that without doing the journey. And then with... Stampede, there's some of the stuff you can do. You can do the Chilcoo Trail. It's a national park, which is half American and half Canadian, and it's a thirty-five mile or thirty-seven mile trail. You get a permit. They only let so many people do it. It looks like it. Do, it does today. However, you know the White Horse Rapids, which were one of the most feared rapids that, and a lot of boats were lost and really one of the like more harrowing parts of getting to the Yukon down the Yukon River you know that's been buried behind a dam you know so i didn't go to whitehorse because i didn't want whatever i saw there i didn't want it to like accidentally you know kind of seep into you know whatever my prose would be i didn't want to you know the landscape has changed and i i was trying to write a book for stampede that was not a back and forth it was not really about the journey it was I was trying to write a book that was wholly within itself and only used words of the time and knowledge of the time and was very, very chronological and very narrative and very tightly within itself. So I only did portions of the journey that look now the way they did then. And then I tried to give those, you know, my observations from the Chilkoot I gave to Jack London because he was the character at the time who was, uh, you know, that I wrote up going over that, that particular portion of it. So there are times when the journey is indispensable. And then there are times when uh, the observations of the characters that you get out of the archives or the oral histories or their letters, where that is way more valuable than anything you could see because things change and, and a lot has changed up there.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question of how to use being in that space and how to use the archival materials. I really feel like both of them are so critical and that they often can complement each other. Sometimes it's only by going to a space that you understood what somebody was talking about in the archive, and then you can sort of bring it together in a way that maybe nobody thought to before, which is fantastic. That's like such a great moment when that occurs. For me, for the kind of writing that I do, uh, I like to sort of be in international spaces, move outside of different cultures or where cultures collide with each other, and history is... Uh, either partly forgotten you know again a little bit like the discovery of the Klondike sometimes there's lots of people who knew it perfectly well but it isn't necessarily the popular narrative or the understood narrative I love dissecting that stuff but people who are historians with PhDs that have made big studies of historiography I think that they have certain skills that I want to be aware of I want to tap into I want to quote their works Uh, I think all that is really important But I'm always thinking, what can I add to a story that maybe nobody has done before? And I think as the journalist side of that, for me, often it is to be in that space. So, for instance, with my last book, One Long Night, which was the concentration camp history, historians can, you know, there were people who had looked at one concentration camp for 30 years. I was never going to know more about that camp I should use their material and quote them, but I'm, I'm not gonna be able to write a book on one camp the way that they could. But what I can do instead often, uh, it's a little variation from the academic approach, is instead of going narrow and very, very deep, to go broad and wide. So with Icebound, I wanted to go to this idea of, of this first really chronicled um, European expedition, trying to seek that Northeast passage. And the diary, that was the spine of that third voyage where they overwinter is pretty dry but i found that by actually looking at the events that happened and not adding anything else in at all but just looking at the events that happened and realizing wait a polar bear is on the roof ripping the sail you know and they're stuck you know just that if you just slow the pace down of how you're describing things and then you can be in that space physically, go visit it. I visited the ruins of William Barron's cabin on the northern end of Nova Zemlya on my third voyage. That's the one where the engine died and then we saw the walruses. Then I think you can kind of fuse those two things together. So for instance, I did two voyages and then the dog sledding expedition. So three trips in all. Between those three trips, I was in the Arctic for five months of the year. And so I heard and saw what ice sounded like and what it looked like in several different seasons, when it's getting hotter, when it's getting colder, when it's deep in winter, when you're when you're out where there's only ice and nothing else, or when you're in a transition zone where ice is beginning to form, but it hasn't yet. One of the things that was really useful about being in the place is I could talk about how the ice is without attributing it to them, but it still helps to create an understanding of what does ice sound like when it's getting warmer. I'm not saying that's what they heard but that's what ice sounds like when it's getting warmer and so then you can sort of make a richer picture without attributing anything to anybody you know incorrectly or inappropriately that will still make it vivid for the reader but one of the dangers as Brian said is when you have uh, a landscape that's changed right and a lot has changed there in 400 years so you have to attend to at least I had to attend to what was the same and what was different and try to be careful to focus on the parts that were consistent.
0: The whole time you're reading both books, it's gripping, it's, it's adventurous, it's thrilling. And I'm sure that's one of the reasons that even more than the gold, um, why people keep going to the North to explore or, or experience it is because there is that, uh, it, it's, it seems so captivating. Do either of you have any other observations or impressions, things about the books that you've written that, that reviewers haven't gotten at, or that, that you wanted to explore in greater depth?
1: It was interesting. Like Reviews are always interesting for what tax people take, and, and when people criticize things that are actually in the book that were decisions of mine, like, I don't mind it, because it's like, well, I realized that, but this is how I wanted to do it. It's more disconcerting if they find something you didn't think of that you wished you had. But in a couple cases with Icebound, critics were like, she should have speculated more on these guys' interior lives or she should have told us more about the details of like the individual sailors. It, it almost made me laugh because it's like I felt like that might be in some ways a measure of the success of the book because of whatever I did right in writing the book. Because the story is more than 400 years old, and I wanted that challenge. I wanted a story. My other two books had been set in the very late 19th and mostly 20th century, and to go back more than 400 years and try to have a gripping narrative where I'm saying I'm not going to say what they thought or felt if I don't know what they thought or felt. I'm going to describe a situation. Hopefully the reader will have thoughts and feelings about it or where they shared little details about how they felt. I'll share that or how other people in that same situation on similar expeditions felt. I can share that. But I felt strongly that I didn't want to attribute a lot to them. I didn't want to to speculate in that way. And some reviews thought that that it would be possible even to do that. I felt like that's great because that means they were interested enough in the story to like to want more of that. But it was really a challenge to go back so far. Um, you know, there's a lot of great polar narratives. And I think the reason that Barrett's story has kind of been displaced in the popular imagination has been that there are so many 19th and 20th century expeditions that have Photos and hundreds of letters and film and telegrams that were sent from, you know, not too far away and and zeppelins. And I mean, there's there's all kinds of crazy media and visuals and things. And there's actually not a lot from Barron's era that we have to go on. And so I both liked that challenge. Uh, And then it was interesting to me when people wanted more depth. um, But it just like it wasn't possible to go there. Uh, but still, I'm I'm glad to have tackled it. I think 400 years, is. It, I might wait a while before I do another narrative that's from that far back.
2: I was just going to uh, second and endorse what Andrea said, that it's, I think the standard for saying this person thought this or this person felt this is just, that standard is so high. And unless they actually said it, unless, you know, they put it in an oral history or wrote it in their journal that day or whatever else, I similarly would never want to speculate if, if. If a character in Stampede says they thought this, uh, and I put it in quotes, it's because they literally said it somewhere, um, and no other, and no other reason. I also commiserate that on on disappointment River, I really had Mackenzie's Alexander Mackenzie, who did the first recorded descent of that river, of the Mackenzie River in northern Canada. You know, I had his journal. And so you end up reading a lot into specific word choices. Why did he use this word and not that word? When you have, when you have that kind of single source, um, and you're trying to like extract every last tiny shred of of everything from it, um, you know, at a certain point, sometimes you can only go
0: so far. I guess a, a point of a, a brief point of departure between the two books is Stampede. Is it is as you said, Brian closer to the modern era, and many of, the, many of the people who participated in the stampede were modern, uh, for, not for all intents and purposes, but, you know, truly modern cosmopolitan people the way we think of them today. Whereas, I, and I think you, you mentioned, you, you alluded to this, Andrea, when you were talking about um, the slaughter of animals, the Dutch of the 16th century come from an era, the West has not yet achieved supremacy, and they're approaching the world around them with all of the savagery any country can muster when it feels entitled to do whatever it likes. And so inhabiting, I I don't know that you would want to inhabit necessarily that perspective, the perspective of a person who is like kidnap that person over there, seize him, guard, seize him. That's a really hard mental framework to, to get into even if you wanted to undertake it. So it's not just the 400 years, it's also at least two or three layers of culture.
1: Yeah, I think that it's important not to make them entirely different than us and not to make them just like us, you know, to let to sit with the uneasiness of both of those realities. And to that end, I'm glad you asked that question because one of the things that I was trying to do with this book is uh, there's something sort of mystical about a lot of these polar adventures. You know, they're almost like fairy tales. And there is something about the landscape and the way we imagine which is a lot of what we impose on it the polar and the arctic landscapes that lends itself to this you know you do have the wild animals and magical things can happen and you have the high stakes that people can die and it's beautiful but it was really important to me to to let all that in take it apart when it's based in culturally uh, uncomfortable stuff and also to really meet them where they were at and I have talked with different narrative writers who really feel like they have to kind of, they want to make heroes out of their subjects, that that's how they sort of gin themselves up to tell a good story about it. If the person is at all heroic, then they just sort of embrace that heroicity. I don't know what, you know, hero nature, whatever you would call it. Whereas for me, I really like trying to let that paradox be there and to say the way that these guys worked together to survive that they took care of each other is astounding. And that the number of them that did make it home made it home, which again, I won't give away here, but I think is just incredible and shows a heroic spirit. And there's real glory in having survived and returning. And and they also did some shameful things and they sailed, Spain and Portugal basically had captured so much of this international trade. And, and yeah, you know, Spain would has just dominated the Americas at that point and you know england and and the Dutch are which is a new republic. the Dutch is a brand new republic in this moment. They are really thinking like, we want to cash in on that. And there is no hesitation, as you said, you know, it is seize and plunder. And the only sort of breaks on that in a lot of cases are when they were told at one point on the second voyage in their sort of commissioning orders. That you cannot interfere or take any, you can't interfere with or take anything from the local populations. But it wasn't out of the goodness of their heart. It was because they might be dependent on them for this trade route. And so, you know, even when they did the right thing, sometimes it wasn't for great reason. And I wanted to let all that sit together. And some readers, it's interesting, had a bad reaction to that. And they're like, these guys were so awful and stupid. I couldn't even finish. The book was well written, but these guys were so awful and stupid. I couldn't finish the book. And yeah, you know, I. I realized that that's disappointing to some people that they want a hero's story, but I really felt like it was important to sort of show all those facets. And I still think that there's things to admire, but I had to be honest that there were also things not to admire.
0: I think that's a great place to end. Uh, Again, I really appreciate both your time. Icebound and Stampede are two remarkable stories of exploration and folly, and as you mentioned, heroism and overcoming and triumph of the human spirit under awful conditions that the human spirit has gotten the human into they're marvelous books and just the thing to sit down with uh, in the middle of a heat wave which is when this is being recorded uh, to, to dream about a cool arctic so thank you so much for joining us